James uh, Vischer, who uh, for many years was head of the uh, Canadian Reformed Church, um, tells uh, a story from uh, his own experience, a story of pastoral criticism. Uh, one of the churches he served, he said, there was a nice little old man in the congregation. And um, he had a wife, as he puts it, who was really a nagging person. None of us have wives like that, but he must have. I don't know what that's about. And so she was always after him for one thing or another. And so uh, he tried to um, escape from the house as much as possible. Well, uh, unfortunately, as part of his escape, he loved to delve into church matters. Uh, matters in the congregation, big or small, he wanted to put his two cents worth in, he wanted to get involved in, denominational things, whatever it was, he loved to champion this cause, that cause, whether it be big or small. Well, one day, Dr. Vischer said, he came into my office at the church, and he had a number of complaints about how the church was run. And he told me, Dr. Vischer said, in no uncertain terms, I'm not the only one who thinks this way. Uh, as a matter of fact, he said, I'm representing a number of disgruntled people. And so Dr. Vischer said, so I said to him, oh, so you're acting as a troubleshooter. Well, the old man totally misunderstood. Uh, his English was limited, Dr. Vischer said, and he was also rather deaf. And so when he left the office, he thought I'd called him a troublemaker. And needless to say, he said, I was in hot water in the congregation. One misunderstood expression on my part uh, created a whole avalanche of unjustified criticism that took quite a while to address, he said, and to quell. Well, what I've discovered over the years, there are always those who will criticize and sometimes through their criticism seek to undermine those in positions of spiritual leadership in a congregation. If you have been involved in leadership in a congregation, pastor, elder, trustee, Sunday school superintendent, you, you name it, whatever the position might be, if you've been in a leadership role in the congregation, you've discovered the same. And sadly, no one in Christian ministry is above criticism. No one is immune from it. And as you heard me say throughout this entire series on 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul faced criticism on a number of fronts. And Paul, as we come to chapter 10, uh, really engages very vigorously in a defense of his character and of his ministry. Not because he's personally hurt. That, that was irrelevant, whether he was or whether he wasn't. Uh, it's not because of personal offense. That was irrelevant one way or another. But because in the end, Paul understood that what was at stake was really the gospel. What was at stake was the Great Commission. What was at stake was the testimony of Jesus Christ. What was at stake was the work of the church. And so these things need to be addressed. Nothing to do with me personally, but there is a bigger issue, a bigger cause that all these things touch upon. And so two weeks ago, as we began to look at this text in 2 Corinthians 10, I mentioned I wanted to look at this text under four headings. And we looked at the first two already. A couple weeks ago, 
we noticed Paul's ministry approach. So Paul begins by saying, how do I minister? What's my philosophy of ministry? How do I approach things? And we read these verses, verses 1 and 2. I'm Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul says, my ministry approach is that of Jesus Christ. I try to model my apostolic ministry with the same spirit, the same heart, the same attitude that Jesus had during his three, three plus years of earthly ministry. And how does Paul describe Jesus' ministry? It was marked by meekness and gentleness. Paul says, that's the way I minister with a spirit of meekness and gentleness. But you notice what does he say in verse 2? If I need to take strong action, I will. If I need to use strong words, I will. Just as the meek and gentle Christ made a whip of cords and drove the money changers out of the temple, Paul says, I minister from a posture of meekness and gentleness, but when need be, I can take strong action just as Jesus Christ himself took strong action, but I model my ministry after that of Jesus. We spent a message focusing on these two verses. Then last week, we looked at the weapons that Paul uses. So he's in a conflict. There are those in the church who are attacking the gospel he proclaims. They're attacking him as a person. They're attacking his ministry. Intruders who have come from the outside, and Paul has to engage in battle, if you will. And Paul says, but here are the weapons that I use starting in verse 3 through verse 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete." Paul says there is a battle to be fought, and it's not over peripheral things. I talked about how sometimes in a church we fight over secondary things, uh, matters of opinion that can so often happen in a congregation. Paul says there are issues at stake here. The, the, the ones who have come into Corinth are preaching another Jesus. They're bringing another gospel. They're promoting a different Holy Spirit. You don't say, well, I guess to each his own. I need to take a stand. I need to take strong action. And through writing and through words and through showing up in Corinth, I need to engage in this great conflict because the congregation itself is at stake. The gospel is at stake. The message of Christ is at stake. And Paul says, but when I do this, I don't use worldly power tactics. What does he say? We are not waging war according to the flesh. But Paul says we use divine power. And we looked last week at Ephesians 6. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always, the weapon of all prayer. So how do you engage in battles that you need to fight? It is not using power and, and pressure and tactics that unsaved people would use, but it's taking God's Word in a prayerful way in the power of the Holy Spirit and engaging that way. And so Paul says, as I deal with these issues, I don't use worldly power tactics. I rely on the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word and through prayer. Well, this morning I want to come to the end of the text and two more headings that I want you to notice. And the third one is this. I want you to notice Paul highlights 
his work. So when you sum it all up, what is an apostle supposed to do? When you sum it all up, what are we as, as um, leaders in the church, volunteers in some ministry, what are we called to do when you get right down to it? So notice these verses, verses 7 and 8. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. We discover in these verses uh, that the false teachers who had come to Corinth from outside, what they said to the Corinthian congregation is, Christ doesn't really work through Paul at all. He works through us, not through this uh, apostle who claims to be an apostle, this Paul. And so that's the charge. Does Paul truly belong to Christ or does he not? And how does Paul respond? Notice verse 7, the first sentence. Look at what is before your eyes. Look at what's right in front of you, you Corinthians. Open your eyes, he says. Face the obvious fact. You say that you're Christians, Paul says to the Corinthians. This is kind of his line of thinking here. You say that you're Christians, that you're part of the family of God, that you have the Holy Spirit, that you're united with Christ by grace through faith. Okay, so how did that come about, Paul says? How did you come to faith? How did you become Christians? How was a church established in Corinth? If you Corinthians belong to Jesus Christ as you say you do, who is the one who brought you to Christ? Wake up, Paul says. Look at what's right in front of you. Your faith, your embrace of the gospel, your existence as a congregation in Corinth is, is proof enough of God's saving power and saving mercies because I'm the one that God sent to Corinth. You came to faith through my getting off the boat and preaching in the streets of Corinth. A congregation is raised up. You've come to know Christ. You have a living faith in your heart. You have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It was because I came in the Lord's leading that all of that happened. That should be proof enough that I'm of Christ, Paul says. Look at what's in front of you. Open your eyes. They're looking at other things, aren't they? Well, he's not a great public speaker, some would say. Uh, he's battles with chronic physical ailments. He's always in trouble. He's always in jail. Uh, he doesn't have the charisma that we think an apostle should have. He's not really engaging in an interpersonal way like apostles should be. He doesn't have these fantastic visions and dreams and ecstasies that we have, that we can tell you about. Paul doesn't have any of that kind of stuff. Paul says, that's never the issue. The plain evidence is here in your own lives that you're saved. The plain evidence is in your community. There's a congregation in, in Corinth that I'm heaven sent. Because none of this would have happened if I hadn't come to Corinth. The Lord used my preaching, my ministry, to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. And you're wondering if I'm of Christ, Paul says. And so he says, I know what the intruders are saying. We're the ones who are of Christ. We are truly the ones that are of Christ. And Paul says, let them say that however that might be. If that's true of them, Paul says, I am no less a servant of Christ than they are. That, that's understatement if there ever was one. And so Paul says, look at what's before your eyes. No, I come in the name and the power of Christ. Look at the evidence in your own lives, in your own congregation. And notice verse 8. Why is Paul so confident? Verse 8, why is he boastful, if you will? 
He says, because, what does he say? My spiritual authority is not self-derived. Notice he speaks about his authority, which the Lord gave. So he's not self-authorized. The Lord gave him that authority for ministry. It comes directly as a gift from Christ himself. And it's an authority. You notice, here's what ministry is about. So whatever you're going to be engaged in in ministry this fall, and I know many of you will be volunteers in many different ways. So what is gospel ministry all about? Those under our care, those that we minister to, it is for what purpose? For building them up, not for tearing them down. Paul says that in essence highlights what my work is all about. Open your eyes. What are the intruding apostles doing? They're coming into Corinth trying to tear everything down. Is that New Testament work? Is that the work of an apostle, Paul is saying? They are working to destroy the foundation, the gospel itself. They're working to destroy virtually everything that I have built here in Corinth. And he said, is that the work of a true apostle? Answer me that. And he says, if they were legitimate apostles of Christ, would they not be working to build upon the foundation that I established on my mission trip? Would they not be working to enhance, to encourage to strengthen the congregation. Wouldn't there be a harmony? Their style might be different and all that, but wouldn't there be a harmony between my message and their message? Between my character and their character? Wouldn't it be the same? Yes, different ways of doing things, different style, all of that, different gifts, but there would be a harmony. They would be strengthening and expanding. They're in the destruction process. And so Paul says, realize that when a person's actions, when a person's, put this in quotation marks, ministry, endangers or damages a congregation no matter what claims that person makes no matter how spirit-filled that person claims to be no matter how charismatic the personality no matter what claims to apostleship no matter how many letters of recommendation remember that's another issue where are your you know documentation that you're an apostle no matter how many stuff that you, like that that you have that one doesn't have an authority as an apostle unless that one preaches the true message of Christ and is truly sent and commissioned by God. And so Paul says, my goal, you Corinthians, some of you don't understand this because I've had to be hard sometimes. I've had to write some strong things. I've had to say some strong things. I've had to take some difficult actions. But my ultimate goal is to build you up, to build you up in Christ. That's what it's all about. I want you in Corinth to be a God-glorifying congregation, Paul in essence is saying. I want each of you to be growing in his or her faith. I want you as a church to be passionate about and effective in the work of the gospel, in evangelism, in the Great Commission, in outreach. And my point is I've been working to build you up so that you will be strong, the church will be strong, the ministry will be strong. That's what ministry for me, Paul says, is all about. And so it should be for each one of us. And as Paul makes this point, uh, you notice on the, on the screen I've highlighted that little sentence for building you up and not for destroying you. That's a virtual quotation out of the prophet Jeremiah. To, to make his point, he cites the prophet Jeremiah. And, and I, and I want to take you to just a couple of brief passages in, in Jeremiah's uh, great book of prophecy to see what Paul is doing with this little phrase. Jeremiah chapter 1, the Lord calls... Jeremiah to be a prophet. And Jeremiah recounts the call. Here it is, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. 
See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to do what? Notice the words I've highlighted. To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah's calling under the old covenant was to do two things. He was called, you notice the end of verse 10, to build and to plant. But he couldn't start with that. And the reason he couldn't start with that is if you know the history of the people, they had turned from the Lord. They had embraced idolatry. They had gone the way of paganism. Uh, they, they, they were living lives contrary to the, to the law and the word and the will of God. And they were hardened and they were unrepentant. And so the Lord says to Jeremiah, before you ever get to this building and planting business, I'm calling you mainly to a, to a ministry of destruction. There's a bunch of stuff that needs to be torn down. You notice the words here, pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow. Those things have to be done. All the old has to be demolished with a wrecking ball before the new can ever be built, the Lord says to Jeremiah. And so you read his prophecy. There are lots of passages of judgment, warning of God's wrath, calling sin to account that plucking up, breaking down, destroying, overthrowing kind of business. You read that all the way through Jeremiah. And if you know uh, the history of what happened, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem right at the end of the nation of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar was outside the walls. And of course, if you know the story, the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. The city was leveled. The walls were demolished. The temple was burned to the ground. And there were thousands who died in the siege. There were many more thousands and thousands taken into captivity. There was severe judgment which came. Jeremiah was there as all of it unfolded. But out of all of that, it was God's purposes then to start over, to build something that was new. And so you come to Jeremiah chapter 24, and there's the great promise of God. Okay, everything has been plucked up, broken down, destroyed, overthrown, but guess what? The rest is yet to come. And so Jeremiah chapter 24, we read this in verse 6. It says, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. That's what Paul is quoting in 2 Corinthians. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. And then in Jeremiah chapter 31, the culmination of all this tearing down and building up imagery, we read this in verse 28, Jeremiah 31, 28. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm. It wasn't accidental. The Lord was in charge of all of that. As I watched over them to do all that, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. When is that building and that planting going to take place? What's the context in which it's going to occur? Jeremiah tells us three verses later. It's with the inauguration of the new covenant it's with the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to all who will receive it. And you notice verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant work is a ministry of building up, not tearing down. 
And so Paul says to the Corinthians, what are my opponents doing? They're in the tearing down business. They're destroying what has been built up by way of the gospel. And according to Jeremiah, that's not the work of a new covenant apostle, a new covenant missionary, a new covenant pastor. The work of the gospel is to build up. A gospel-centered person seeks to build up people in the word of God and walking in faith and in grace. Paul says, the new covenant ministry, which I'm part of, is what Jeremiah prophesied about. It's a building up ministry. My opponents are in the tearing down ministry. That's not New Testament. That's not gospel ministry. And so Paul speaks here in this passage very clearly about what his work was all about. It was to build up saints in their walk with the Lord, not to tear down, not to destroy. And that leads me then to the final point. And it's simply this, Paul's character comes under criticism. He already touches on this criticism in verse 1, but let's read the last verses of our text. Paul says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, and here is the quotation, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. End of quote. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. The, the charge is there's a big discrepancy between the Paul who's hundreds of miles away and the Paul who shows up in town. The Paul who's hundreds of miles away is very strong and forceful and all that kind of thing when he writes you these letters from a safe distance. But when he shows up, what does the text say? His bodily presence is weak, he's weak, he's sickly, he doesn't speak well, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of boring, you, you doze off during his sermon, you know, whatever all it is, he's not the greatest person in that way, he's of no account when you see him in person. Oh, his letters, that's a different deal, but boy, when he shows up. That's the charge against him. And all of it is related back to a visit Paul paid them. We read about it way back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, a painful visit. So Paul had come to Corinth, he had established the church, things were kind of going the wrong direction, and so Paul makes an emergency trip to Corinth, and the trip didn't go well. Uh, in fact, Paul came across to some as being weak, being timid, um, those who were opposed to him kind of seemed to have the upper hand, and Paul quickly left Corinth, seemingly in defeat. Now what? Well, Paul decided, rather than on making another trip to Corinth in the near future, which would probably make things worse, he decided to write a letter instead, a letter which is now lost to history. It's a letter that was written between our 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, somewhere in between those two letters. And Paul describes the letter that he wrote, now lost to history, a letter that he wrote, he says in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 4, I wrote it out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Um, Paul was broken and burdened by what was going on in the church. He has to tell it like it is. And that's what he does. So it was a strong letter. He comes back to this letter in chapter 7 and verse 8 where he says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And so the charge against Paul is he's insincere, he's fickle, he's weak, 
He's cowardly. He lacks decisiveness. But boy, when you get a letter from him, watch out. It's a verbal wrecking ball when you open the thing up. But when he shows up, then after he writes this strong, forceful letter, why, he's a big nothing after all. And notice what Paul's response is, twofold response. Verse 9, what does he say about his letters? He says, my goal is not to frighten you by my letters. Yes, I have to say some strong things sometimes, but I'm not trying to terrorize you, if you will, by what I write in the letter. My goal is to build you up. Did you hear what I just said you know, a few verses ago? My goal is to build you up. So my goal is not to frighten you by my letters. And number two, Paul says in verse 11, what I say in my letters, you'll discover I will carry out when I'm present. There is no insincerity. There is no inconsistency. Whether I am away or in person, I am the same apostle called and commissioned by Jesus Christ for your good and for your upbuilding. So these are the opening verses of Paul's defense of his ministry. And as we think about this whole passage, verses 1 through 11, as I thought about it, how do you summarize everything he said in these 11 verses? What are some practical observations and suggestions that I can make in closing? I have a handful of them. Let me just touch on them briefly. Number one, you've heard me say it already this morning. I said it in the previous two messages. No one who seeks to serve the Lord is immune from criticism. Paul was criticized. The other apostles were. Think about Jesus in the Gospels. Talk about criticism. And so if you walk in the way of the Lord, if you seek to serve him, sadly, especially when it's from other professing believers, there will be criticism. No one is immune. If you're going to serve the Lord, expect criticism. Number two, criticism of spiritual leaders from those in the church, hurts and hinders ministry. Now, as believers, we can always expect criticism from the outside. If people don't know the Lord, what else is new? They're going to be very critical of this congregation and of what we do, and those of us who serve here, whatever it is, okay, expect that you understand that they're lost, they're unsaved, what else is new? But when somebody says, I'm a professing believer, and somebody is a part of Grace Church, and engages in that kind of destructive criticism, it hurts and it hinders ministry. It always does mark it down. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the writer says this, Obey your leaders and, to, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Okay, they have a positive. Okay, the reason why they're doing what they're doing is they're trying to watch over your walk, your relationship with the Lord, encourage you in it, make the ministry effective, whatever it is. So obey them because their, their heart goal, they're watching over your souls as those who will give an account. One day I'm not going to give an account to anybody in this room. I will give account to God, though. And if you serve the Lord, you don't give account ultimately to anybody in this room. You give an account to God, and that is an awesome and a fearsome sort of thing. So obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. Let them carry out their ministry with joy and not with groaning, is the way the writer puts it. For that would be of no advantage to you. Why are you making it harder for those who have volunteered for ministry to carry out their ministry? Do you realize that by your criticism or gossiping behind the back or whatever it is, you're undermining the work of the gospel? 
You're making their work harder. You're bringing discouragement. Why are you doing that? The writer of Hebrews says. Let those that have ministry responsibilities carry them out with joy and don't make it extra hard for them. You know, someone once said this, and this is, I, I love this quotation, uh, if you want a better pastor, and you can substitute any other person in the church, you know, that serves, if you want a better pastor, pray for the one you have. Pray for the one you have. Uh, it's easy to criticize somebody in a position of authority or leadership, but to pray for those and ask for God's guidance and leading. And if they have a blind spot, the Lord might open their eyes to see it. Pray for the one you have. Uh, in fact, some, the, the, the writer of Hebrews goes on in the next verse, verse 18, Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. See, that's the main thing in ministry. Is my conscience honestly clear before God? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When you can honestly pray that and say, Lord, search my heart. Is there something in my heart and my life that needs to be dealt with? The importance of having a clear conscience, when that's the case, then you can be whatever comes your way. It's like, Lord, you know my heart. My conscience is clear before you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Criticism of spiritual leaders, especially from those in the congregation, hurts and hinders ministry. Number three, I would urge you to ignore the extremes of criticism and praise. Ignore it. Uh, extremes of praise, I have a famous story from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, the great 19th century Baptist preacher in London. Uh, every Sunday he preached to uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 6,000 at Metropolitan Tabernacle, the, the greatest English-speaking preacher of the 19th century. Uh, after one service, uh, more, Sunday morning service, a woman came up to him and uh, she said to him, I hope I am the first to tell you that your sermon today was absolutely marvelous. And he said to her, no, you're not the first one. Satan told me the same thing when I left the pulpit. Ignore the extremes of criticism and praise. Number four, ignore anonymous criticism. Uh, that's happened to me a, a couple times in my ministry where I have received. I remember on one occasion, I got a letter. I'll tell you what I did with it. Uh, a letter, and I started reading it, and it was extremely critical, and, and I would say maybe even hostile, but it was certainly extremely critical. And I thought, before I read any further, let me flip the page over and see who sent it, because there was nothing on the envelope. Well, nobody signed it. What I did, I didn't read even a word further. I took the piece of paper, I squashed it up, and I threw it in the trash. What I would say is, if someone doesn't have enough integrity to talk to you face-to-face -face in person... Or somebody doesn't have enough integrity to say, here's where this comes from. Here's my name. We can talk about it if you'd like. That person doesn't really care about you as a person. You can mark it down. And the motives, whatever that person imagines them to be, the motives are destructive. Ignore anonymous criticism. Number five, we looked at this last week. If there are key issues at stake foundational issues, fundamental issues. Paul says the false teachers are coming with a different Jesus, 
a different gospel, a different Holy Spirit. Okay, then you take a stand. If there needs to be a fight over that, there's going to be a fight over that. But the weapons of our warfare are not as the world uses, but through the Word and the Spirit and through prayer. That's a battle that needs to be engaged in. You don't let that one go. If there are key issues at stake, you need to answer the criticism as Paul does in the text. Number six, when you realize that somebody is a chronic complainer, and I've known people like that over nearly 40 years of ministry, when you realize somebody's a chronic complainer and they have a burr under their saddle about just about everything, you know, you talk about one thing and the next week there's another burr under the saddle about something else. When somebody is a chronic complainer, always having a burr under the saddle, you're never going to get anywhere with them. Once you, quote, deal with this one, the next one crops up. You make no headway. Again, the best thing to do is to just ignore it all. And that leads then finally to number seven. All criticism, commit to the Lord in prayer. You don't retaliate. You don't become angry. You don't say, who does he think she is? Who does, you know, whatever. You don't do that. You don't retaliate in those kinds of ways. You commit it to the Lord in prayer. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows your motives. When your conscience is clear before him, not we just tell yourself that it is, but when it honestly is clear before him, just commit all these things to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to grant you wisdom and peace and perseverance, and strength, and a, and, and a spirit that doesn't in a personal way. Yes, there may be offenses and whatever, but to not take it personally and internalize it. To say, Lord, I leave it with you. I turn it over to you. When there is criticism that comes, the Lord knows your heart, the Lord knows your motives, and he grants you all that you need to continue on in ministry. Because if he is the one who called you, then he is the one who, in the end, will sustain you to carry out that calling that he's laid upon you. Paul's defense of his ministry. Let's pray together. Lord, there's much that we learn, obviously, from your word in all of Scripture. But to see how Paul handled and dealt with these kinds of very real-world kinds of things. Lord, not everybody here, obviously, is a pastor or an elder or a trustee, or a treasurer, or a Sunday school superintendent, or a WANA director, or youth director, or whatever. Lord, we all volunteer and serve in various ways, and people sometimes can be critical. So what do we do? Well, Lord, you call us to not fight with the weapons of this world, to not take personal offense, to not lash out, not lash back, but to turn all things to you in prayer. Lord, I pray for all of us that we wouldn't make ministry harder for folks than it needs to be. It's always difficult. It's always a challenge. Um, there's joy in it when we know you've called us to it. But Lord, may none of us have part in making it harder for whatever individual it is to carry out his or her calling. Lord, may we be prayerful and supportive and encouraging because it brings glory to your name. It builds up your saints and it provides a clear witness to the community. So may all of that uh, be true for each one of us. Lord, um, take these words that Paul has written under inspiration. Uh, take these words that are about a specific time and place, but apply them broadly to our own experience and to our own circumstances. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.